Hi, I'm Kurt Doty with Rome IQ. This is our podcast, Rome IQ Sessions, where we talk about everything AI with AI leaders from around the world. Please give us a follow or subscribe. And today's guest is Michael Yates, a growth and marketing leader with a long history in B2B SaaS startups, a stint in international entertainment parks. I like to hear about that. And most recently, generative voice AI. He is now primarily concerned with finding the friction points in how humans work and using new AI workflows to eliminate them, something we also care a lot about at Realm IQ. So welcome, Michael. Tell us even more about yourself and your fascinating history and, and some of your points of view on AI and where it's going. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. So a little bit more about myself. Kind of got my start as being like just a little rat in a marketing agency and started just really aggressively growing from there, like adding on a whole bunch of skill sets. And I think that's that's kind of why I have like a lot of startup experiences that a lot of people are looking for generalists who can do a little bit of everything. And it's enabled me to be kind of sort of industry agnostic. And so I've done a lot of B2B SaaS. Like you mentioned, I, I was also a part of the Circus Tricks team for a little bit, which is like an international trampoline park consortium to the tune of about a billion dollars in assets and most recently in the on the AI side of things. And that's really just because dabbling in with it on my own and then just sending out like a really quick hit on a previous company. I was like, hey, your website's got some a lot of technical issues. Here's how I would do it. Maybe we should talk. And it was just honestly that simple. So I think the the breadth of experience has kind of enabled me to sort of get a really nice bird's eye view of how various people work, both on the small startup side of things and also on like the larger enterprise side. That's kind of like a quick hit right there. Yeah. And I deeply appreciate the fact that you have years of experience and a, and a breadth of experience and are kind of multi-pronged in your skill set, because my feeling about AI is that there's a lot of AI experts that cropped up overnight, but but what were they doing before? I don't know. But those of us who've been in marketing and working in corporations and whatever respect for dozens, if not decades of years, you know, we've embraced AI as a tool to make us better at our job and recognize the fact that it has far reaching implications in terms of the workforce. So the more experience you have across a diverse workforce, across different multiple disciplines, I think it makes you and I certainly better qualified to be AI experts. I don't like that term, but helps us be AI consultants in a much more qualified way. And so I appreciate, you know, your diverse background and we, we share the marketing background. So thank you for, thank you for your service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. I mean, I think I think you're totally right. Is that the the amount of people have popped up as like an AI expert when like you may be looking at a year max of really like consumer grade AI tools that have been around. I mean, maybe if you had like a background in machine learning and you know algorithmic studies, then maybe you could probably swing that designation pretty easily. But I think in like the generative AI sort of side of things, I'm like, unless you were doing like homebrew installs on your 16 gigs of VRAM, you're probably not really an AI expert because there was no consumer grade tools for you to even use two years ago. Right. Uh, and so like, I mean, when I was uh, working at voice AI, I had client calls that were telling me that I was already a dinosaur just because I've been doing it for nine months. And I was just like, yeah, it feels like I'm just super old and doing this, just this one little set of generative AI uh, tool set. But at the same time, I think you're right. Is that like, you need people who 
can kind of understand, and this is like dovetails really nicely into what I've been doing now, how people work and where the failure points are going to be, because it's, you know, doing B2B SaaS, like that's all you're really doing on the sales call anyway, is that you're trying to figure out how can this platform fit into this company in a way that transitions into a revenue event for my company as quickly as possible. And you just have to convince them that this can solve all your issues, which is probably why salespeople, the first thing they ask you is like, what are your problems now? And magically the platform that they're selling can solve all those problems. It's the sales strategy that's there. But I think that's the crux of why our experience together makes sense for becoming an AI consultant. Yeah. AI voice and uh, chatbots and sales. Let's talk about that for a bit, because mm -hmm. I, I do believe uh, we're in for a revol revolution in terms of customer service and adding, even though it might be virtual, adding a more humane element to that chatbot experience that has, you know, so far been pretty horrific. Even today I was you know, <laughs> inquiring on a website and they were like, yeah, I, I don't, if you can't answer, if you, if none of these questions on the left solve your problem, then I can't talk to you. It's like, yeah, great. So, so glad to have, you know, no phone number, no 800 number, no customer service yeah. and, and a lousy chat bot. But I, I do believe the opportunities there and I believe it's happening where AI driven voice and chat bots and that customer service side is going to be a place of kind of unparalleled growth. Do you think that? I think it solves an issue that you've described here. And I, you know, some people could probably tie this to like refinement culture where everything has to be simplified over time. I personally sort of railed against the simplification of the user experience because there are complex questions that a user might have. And if it isn't of your four options on the left side of the screen, like you described, then you cannot get help. And that's it. What it does is it spurs people to try to get to a human as quickly as possible because the human can very quickly, oh, here's your, here's the framework that your problem is in. I will help you now on this back end here that any chatbot or IVR system that we've been experiencing before just couldn't do. And I think there's also like, you could, my own like personal soapbox is about like mobile apps, how you can't really do a whole lot. The file structure, your phone is hidden from you, which is probably why people's children now don't know what a file structure is. There's this certain sort of obfuscation of actual work that's being done just to make the UX as simple as possible, which is why I think chatbots have been very frustrating for people to use up until now. With generative AI and RAG tools, you can probably have a much better experience because the bot will still be able to sort of connect the patterns of a problem to, uh, and reference the, its own material on the back end to actually help you in a way that a human would. I still think there's going to be quite a bit of limitations because the chatbots will be locked down from various system and platform points of interest. Yeah, I mean, that yeah, they're, not scraping, they're not scraping the internet to help you. They're working within a, a narrow LLM to that's very specific to the nature yeah. of problems with a certain platform that you're on. So, but, but, you know, if there's some intelligence there, some understanding and now, you know, some memory, right, within the conversation, I think it could be interesting. So we'll have to see. But, I, you know, I really wanted to talk to you also about your take on, you mentioned mobile and birth of touch happened in 2007 and the app stores were created. It was a revolutionary business model for app developers, which, you know, was, was barely a thing. Now it's a thing, right? And let alone the monetization of apps and, and the stepping stones 
to building Apple's wealth because they're they were taking thirty now twenty seven percent of all the revenue generated through the App Store, and here we, not we, but uh, OpenAI launched the GPT Store, and the numbers to date, I believe, are there's there's three million apps that have been submitted, and only just over one hundred fifty thousand have been approved and are available, but yet hard to discover and know about this so-called GPT store. It's just a little button in ChatGPT window if you subscribe. Mm. Uh, and so the visibility and the kind of business plan or modeling or structure is not clearly as defined as it was when the App Store was invented. What's going on here? And are, will, are people making money in the GPT store with their little things they're creating with no coders? What's going on? Yeah, it comes across like it's just going to, the way that they're treating it now is no different than someone having a small link to their socials in the bottom of the webpage. Like you'll get, get a link to their, their Twitter slash X, their LinkedIn, and then also their GPT store, right? I think that's, it's definitely not something that's discoverable. You have to know exactly what you want. And then most of the time, I, I feel like if people are just using it as like lead gen activity based off of like social media. You know, I've seen on TikTok, some social media advertising guys have said, Hey, I put a lot of my expertise in a GPT. You can ask it some questions and it'll, it'll pull up your competitors ads. That's pretty useful. You know, and if, if you want to go down the lead gen route, I think that's okay. But you, again, it's not, it's completely outside of the GPT store. It's you're using your social media to promote it. And so that's, it's really just like, there's no, you, you want to actually minimize the amount of interaction your users have with the GPT store because it is set up in such a poor way. And I think, you know, I've got, like a little tiny relationship advice for men sort of bot that I put together for fun. And that has maybe four conversations and it's, yeah, I think I'm two of them. And so it's, it's like, well, you know, someone has to very specifically look for, I need help with my marriage and then maybe that will pop up. And I've done the same sort of search and there's really, there's one other bot that has 20 conversations and that's it. And so it's not really something that is looking up from discoverability standpoint. I think on the revenue side, I'm not even sure that's turned on yet. I think they've mentioned that the, there's potential for revenue share, but if you can't be discovered, like you can be on the app store, you know, there's really just, there's no incentive. And I think what OpenAI will have to do is probably offer some pretty wild incentives to get people to actually promote their custom GPTs on the store and then eventually scale those back. You know, maybe we will give you 95% of the revenue that that GPT generates just to get that first sort of lost lead sort of event that people actually will start to actually consider it. Maybe I should focus on this. Yeah, it's crazy because, you know, there, there's a thing that was invented called ASO, App Store Optimization, and a whole yeah. business created around the fact that here's how you market in the store, right? First of all, mm -hmm. the store is advertised everywhere, you know, any commercial for any app says, you know, available on the App Store. It's like, okay, I know where that is. And, and boom, you're there. And there's uh, actually, there's only 1.84 million apps in the Apple Store, in the App Store. So, and that's, and that's after some trimming that's happened when Apple got rid of a lot of apps that weren't playing by the rules. So it's, that number's gone down because of that. But you'd, you'd think with 3 million applications on, on the GPT store that, well, there's got to be some good ideas out there, some, some good product development that's lying in wait. And when are those going to come around? 
but this idea of app store apt optimization in a in a in a healthy store marketplace was developed because people were spending time searching right for and discovering and learning and then you know techniques were developed based on tracking user behavior on what works best to actually get a download on your app even if you're a premium model freemium model, whatever it may be. And that created a whole business for agencies, mobile agencies to, to uh, productize the, the marketing efforts that, that were happening in the app store. And so I don't see any of that happening in the G GPT store because I don't know, it's just not really a store, right? It, it, it's, yeah. uh, I, and what a missed opportunity because you have a, so much enthusiasm, right? And, and a lot of people who you know, the barriers have come down in a no code or low code situation where you have an interesting idea. There's a way to get a GPT going and figure it out, do it and launch it. <clears throat> so I think there's a lot of noise there, but I, you know, there's got to be some great ideas that could resonate because the pot, you know, the, the platform itself is so popular based on a simple interface. And uh, and now I think, you know, voice is going to play a huge part in moving forward with prompting that it's just going to get easier. I think what they need to do is really focus on actually getting people outside of their store interface. You know, it's very annoying to have to go to ChatGPT and open up my custom GPTs on the side instead of having like a link on my phone or on my desktop that I can actually just go into to use that one tool. And I think obviously they want people in the store as much as possible because discoverability and, you know, getting that sort of like screen time. But at the same time, I also don't want to have to open up the store every time I open up an app on my phone. Right. So I think that front end experience is mimic what Apple's doing, but it's an app that's completely isolated on its own once it's been downloaded. And if someone wants something new, then they can hit the store. Yeah, it's it definitely feels like they it's almost like they're just seeing like what GPTs get the most popular and then they'll build an in-house feature based off of that. And, you know, when I was doing voice AI, when they came out with their voice, I'm like, well, here it is. Like they figured out that voice AI was getting very popular. You know, what's the release of Tortoise and Eleven Labs and things like that. And then uh, so we'll put voice in chat GPT. And so there's like that little bit of like thread of like how much information am I, what sort of product ideas am I giving them by having a custom GPT that gets popular? Um, you know, I think the video stuff that they just released is actually probably a very large leap about uh, from where we've been before with video. Sora, Sora, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you get a full minute, and that was the thing that I first saw. Is like one, I want to know how long it takes to actually generate this, and two, how many resources are spent just to generate that one minute? Because some of these other services I've seen, like Pika and Runway ML, you don't get a full minute; you get a couple seconds, right? And then you got to yeah. splice together multiple seconds of, of shots to edit a, a full video, and it doesn't have the near amount of like dolly tracking that these other videos that are coming out of Sora have. And so I'm thinking to myself, they were probably the only people who had the resources to put together that feature just because the mass amount of money and GPU power that's required just to get a full minute of, you know, 30 to 60 frames per second video out there. Yeah. So I think the resources are there very much like how, you know, Google seems to have this reputation of throwing out projects and then they get released. The PMs get a couple of, you know, handshakes and claps on the back and then they never get updated again. Do Google Plus, one of those things. So like it's- Google Plus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do have a fear that OpenAI would probably go down that route because you get a lot of hype for a couple of months anytime you release some crazy new thing and then people start trying to figure out, okay, well, how can I actually, you know, 
integrate this into my life and does it actually work for me and is it usable and right now the gpt store even with my own custom ones i've made for myself to sell my own personal work is still somewhat annoying to get into um, and it's a, somewhat of annoying of an interface to get into as well because there is no api access into my custom gpt yeah uh, so there's there's a couple of roadblocks there that i think they need to get get over because the way people are working now is that they don't want to go to chat.openai uh, every time yeah, it's all use... it's all happened so fast, and, and I think there's a lot of good ideas that are the casualty of this race in speed to market and the competition between big tech. It's just created this hockey stick curve going upward that is accelerating. You know, they're just trying to who's who's going to be the next video leader, <laughs> and yeah. and they just forget about all these other features they started. And then, you know, Google, for one, is a brand I've written about this, is that, you know, they're changing names from Bard to Gemini to, you know, all these other features. And, okay, how, how are they related? Do they need to be? Are they interrelated? Is it one subscription for all? You know, what's going on here? There's a lot of confusion. And a lot of people over this past year have been... Okay, I'll get the subscription, try it out for a couple months, cancel that subscription, start a new subscription, check that out, see if it, it makes a difference in my life and my workflow, or I'll cancel that. Something new comes out, you know, there's always a new shiny object, and yet another tier of payments that need to be made. And, you know, it becomes like the streaming networks, right? You know, yeah. I recently cut my cable cord and and to save money and and now all the streaming costs you know it, it's getting me back up to where i was with a cable bill and and i don't watch sports really except the super bowl which is great by the way so i don't want to pay for sports but somehow you get the disney bundle you get espn it's like yeah i don't care yeah. so but it's the same model of like you know monetizing through subscription and there's there's subscription fatigue going on for sure. Don't you have that? Yeah, and it's it's you know I actually feel like I don't buy much of anything. I hear about something and I go, okay, how can I do this for free? Right. It's the same thing with like Dolly. You know, I didn't pay for it. I got a stable diffusion install on my home machine. You know, I just made my own images and I was able to integrate that into my workflow. But yeah, when it comes to subscription fatigue, there's and I've seen this is that it, there's a great benefit in having someone forget that they're paying you, and that's like the dark side of SaaS business. Is uh, you know B two B you're not going to get that, but like B two C you're definitely going to get some people who are forgetting to use the product that they've, that they've paid for nearly as much as they should to get the value. I'm sure streaming services probably have the same little dark accounting sort of philosophy in some way. Oh, yeah, and so it, it gets to the point where it's you have to realize value very quickly. And this is really, it's on the platforms themselves to show you how to get value out of these things. Because eventually, yeah, they might have a great quarter, but two quarters from then, they're probably going to see a lot of churn. And then they're going to have some panic marketing rather than actual brand building. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, the behavior of multimodal or platform hopping to try to get to an outcome that you want is is being solved more and more now with big tech tackling that multimodal issue. It's a marketing feature now. It's like, yeah, go, go multimodal with Google. Or, mm -hmm. um, but none of them have perfected it by any means. And there's still a lot to be desired.
in terms of that interoptability and big picture thinking about, you know, and I'm a UX guy. It's like, well, what is that user journey? What are, who are the types of people that are intersecting with this technology and what are their needs? You know, what does a film editor need? What does an illustrator need? What, what does a journalist need? And what are those user journeys and how can they do it all in one place instead of going all over the place? So, yeah. I, and I know there's a number of AI startups because I, I talk with them who are trying to tackle that problem, you know, build, build kind of community-based features, you know, kind of an agency, internal agency model where you're getting approvals and feedback on the same people looking at the same thing and, and then being able to output in multiple different formats, you know, Adobe Express does that, Canva Magic does that. So there's a lot of playing around and attempting to do it, but still frustrating. And I don't think no one has, no company yet has really solved that. I've seen a lot of like doom prophecy around the death of vertical SaaS and every single open AI wrapper got killed when the GPT store came out. And I think that is actually a little bit short-sighted. The companies who can't adapt to that probably, yeah, sure. They're not going to succeed very well, but people don't want to use the GPT LLM text box all the time. And like having to type out a prompt, you know, like I asked myself, why is there not a library of prompts that I can pull from? right? And throw that into any LLM. And if I'm, if I'm going through like content writing, I want my LLM to kind of like be my assistant on the side. If I'm a journalist, I want to actually like pull relevant, like historical events to what I'm talking about, or at least go through it. Even I've done, you know, really early in my career, I did a lot of legal work. And so then it's just like, there needs to be some sort of like case law reference LLM that can actually grab stuff as you're typing out your brief, you know, that would have been huge for what I was doing. And so I think, that sort of verticalized SaaS with like just an LLM feature attached to it, but still in the process that people can click and drag with their mouse rather than type or use a voice chat to interact with the LLM. I still think that's going to have like a lot of value because it, it's it's a lot faster for someone to click with a mouse than it is to say something, right? And so you have to have those clickable elements to actually access through rapid clickable, work. Yeah, let alone write a prompt. Exactly. Which has, you know, been complex and, and voice could, can make it simpler. You being a fan of AI voice, come on now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think like Adobe Firefly, you know, instead of using prompts to get to formats, they just have a, you know, sc screenshots of format dimensions and you just, this is what I want. Click, 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 yeah. click. And that that's a great interface because they tackle that problem of, I didn't know I was supposed to type in dash dash AR space 16 colon nine to get yeah. a horizontal image. You know, it's like, really? I I had to go to YouTube to figure that out. It's like, it's so frustrating in those early kind of mid journey discord days. That was, you know, crazy. Oh yeah. I mean, to me, that's, that's just not usable. I don't want to like contradict myself. I made a crack about mobile, you know, UIs being terrible to work with. I think once you start getting into the usability aspect of these sorts of things, yes, clickable elements, like give me a style. And it's really just like a back end. It's just a front end for like a really complicated prompt. I think the thing I feel like I haven't seen in such a long time is like, yes, I'm a power user, flip this flag on, right? And so then I can actually get into the weeds of how this platform works. And so like, if I have the ability to do a quick click, 
And if I don't like it, then I can crack open the prompt and actually do this. So it's like calling and colon waiting for the various prompts, add some Laura's in, you know, like really get really complicated based off my own personal library, which would be super strong for any sort of designers. That's where I say like, okay, perfect. You have the simplicity up front, but if you, if you don't allow me to crack open how to actually interface with this tool that you have inside your platform, I'm going to get very, very annoyed and go to the, someone who allows me to be more complicated or again, like I've done before, go to the homebrew side. So I think there, this needs to be sort of like this product mark, product manager UX sort of like people need to come down a little bit on the feature side and actually turn it into something usable because otherwise we're going to be stuck like not having revenue for any of these AI startups that are coming out. And so then, you know, that's not what I want. I want the the market to grow. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I spent a good two years in the web three space trying to make social media better and had a full understanding of what was wrong with social media and how to make it better. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there were some universal concepts, but then there are other problems that needed to be solved with innovation and that required innovation and in interface design. And I, you know, I like pushing the envelope. I also like, to develop features and interfaces that are discoverable, like, and not necessarily readily known, but you get in there and then you go, oh, intuitively, I'm going to do this and I, I get it now, right? That's a discoverable feature, not necessarily marketable, but discoverable mm -hmm. and, and that has high utility. So that's when it has not happened <laughs> in all these interfaces in in AI, generative AI at least, because they're they're moving too quickly and they're just trying to move on to the next feature when they haven't really, you know, they they develop the functionality, but they don't develop the user interface and the user experience design to support the adoptability of that feature. Right. They just race on to the next thing and it's very frustrating. And then they change the brand name and they change. Oh, now videos with this name. Now it's like, you can't do video here. It's like, but really, you know, can you just take five minutes and think about what you're doing, you know, and ha have a strategy or a plan, a product with any product, you have a product roadmap and, you don't abandon the rest of the products that you're leaving behind. You, they're part of the MVP moving forward. So I just think there's a lot. Of, I, I experience a lot of frustration with all this proliferation, and you know, the it's it's like the the arms race, right? You know, who's going to get the most nukes? And yeah. it's like at some point, okay, we need to have a treaty and stop producing nuclear weapons and figure out how to control who has the weapons and maybe they shouldn't and think about governance right which is also a whole other podcast show that we could maybe have yeah. but do you experience uh, all that same frustration yeah i think everyone's terrified of the one pull request that kills their company right like so if google kicks out or open ai kicks out something that's brand new and it's like oh my god this is what i've been doing this for the past eight months of my life my company's dead now I think a lot of people are terrified of that, but it, it's almost like we've forgotten all the lessons that we learned from B2B SaaS where you have an incumbent. I've, I've been here. There's a major, you know, 800 pound gorilla in the space and I'm working for a tiny little startup and commission automation. And we start chipping away with having better interface, better solutions. 
easier to get to the com complex stuff while also making it simple. This is probably gonna be a theme I'll keep saying over and over again. And as we start chipping away at that enterprise scale commissions automation platform, more and we start taking more of their customers, we start having a better reputation, our G2 score starts going up, you know, and I think that's that's still possible. And even if you are just a quote unquote, an open AI wrapper, there's interface success that you can have that they just don't have right now because they're so focused on other things. And I think there's there's a ton of opportunity to be that better service platform. And this is lessons that we've learned in B2B SaaS. So I'm a, it's strange to me that everyone's like so focused on like, we gotta push like more efficient GPUs. We gotta get more server infrastructure. I need $7 trillion. Like that all makes sense. But there's a ton of work to be done and actually turning this stuff into something that everyday people can use and have good experience with. I, I did spend some time talking to a major phone manufacturer. We may or may not have mentioned them already. And they were trying to figure out how to get voice and LMs onto the phone. And my advice to them was like, you really are still looking at another couple of years just from a phone power standpoint. You can maybe have some of it on the chip and then, because it's really, it's a RAM issue. And then, then maybe you can have some cloud component, but they really wanted to get it on the phone itself without any sort of connection needed. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where you're going to start seeing that sort of like Apple App Store moment where people don't need to interface with like something that's bad and kind of crappy, like the GPT store and use something that they're familiar, which is their thumbs on a phone screen. And I think that's, once we get into that, we don't need to have cloud computing involved with LMs as much. You'll probably start to see a little bit more. Yeah, I, it's fascinating because with my UX background, I just spoke with a bunch of UX students at uh, SCAD in Atlanta. And, and, you know, there's general worry about you know, what's happening to the design industry with generative AI. And I was actually encouraged by looking at their work because they used mid-journey to, to tell their stories, their narrative, and, with, you know, beautiful illustrations of, you know, the future of some experience, whether it's future transportation, the future of telecommunications, the future of internet of things at home, which I call the AI of things now because... Mm -hmm. That's what I do, make up names. But I, I think there's a healthy future for user experience design because in this new world, because these problems are not being solved and they can be solved with great user experience design and help products propel themselves to be most user-friendly, you know, frictionless experiences. And that that's what you want when interacting with a product. You know, go back to the the iPod days, what a revolution that was. And it was, it was just so simple, but revolutionary. And, you know, that was fantastic. It was so simple. It was just fantastic, but it never been thought of before. Yeah. So, and that was the earliest iteration of touch, right? And now everything's pinch and zoom and touch and whatever. But so, you know, I'm encouraged for this vocation of user experience design, because these problems are not being solved. Do you, do you have a sense of that as well? Yeah. I mean, I think there's always going to be a reason to talk to people who are using the product and they're going to tell you what they find annoying. Right. And they're going to say like, I really wish it did this. And it's insanely valuable to have that sort of insight into someone who's outside of your you know, little AI bubble. And it's very easy for like tech workers to get into these bubbles about what they think works. And then they meet a regular person who's been giving them money every month and they're stunned by what they're saying. 
right? Like, why did we never think of this? Like this person is having major frustrations within the first five minutes. And I think the, the generative AI side of stuff needs to get beyond like this text prompting. And it needs to be much more simple so that people can get the outcomes that they want. And I think that's what I always ask people when I talk to on the consulting side and other people, like even during like interviews I've, I've had, it's like, why would someone give you money? What's the point? And it is, with the subscription fatigue, it's like, you better have a good reason. And right now, like, you know, I'm, I give OpenAI money every month for my plus subscription because I want to make sure I know what's coming, right? It's almost, that's all it is. It's, a, it's like a personal profession and research yeah, tool for me. Sure. And like, I use a couple of custom GPTs here and there just for like personal work. If I want to like organize my marketing thoughts or something. But even then it's like, before we were able to upload our own documents, completely useless to me because I just wasn't ready for like the generic content, you know, rundown. Yeah. Well, listen, we're getting towards the end of our uh, show here. I just want to give you the chance to shout out any uh, projects or causes that you're supporting and where you see things going and offer your perspective. Final, final words. What do you have to say? Yeah. I mean, I think we talked a lot about like the usability of stuff. That's why I am building wavy.ai. W-A-V-I.ai. It, it takes documents, meetings, live chat, all within your team and actually turns into like recommended actions. So you don't have to be in every single meeting. The way we build it is kind of like it's the AI assistant for everybody. And what it answers is what do I need to know before this meeting and what do I need to do after? Um, and that's like what I've been focused on is like actually turning this, this tool set into something usable for people in their day to day. Right. Without having it to be something you're forced to interact with. Everything so far has sort of been like LLMs are kind of like passive data that you can reference. We're trying to turn it into active data that actually helps you out based off of new developments inside your company that you weren't even there for. You know, really helpful for product and sales teams to have cross communication without those sort of follow up check ins that have to happen for two hours every week. So that there's a lot of like, obviously, in this breadth of experience we've talked about before, there's a lot of like friction points that I'm trying to to solve with Wavy. And so, you know, building a little bit slow, there's some Google approvals for data are, are very strenuous now, especially if you're an AI platform. I think they've changed their, some of their rules lately, but it's it's cranking along pretty well. Awesome. Well, congrats. So thanks, Michael, for being with us today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in and catch more of our Realm IQ sessions on your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeart Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. So please follow and smash that subscribe button. So thanks again. We hope to have you back, Michael, and wonderful talking with you today. Thanks for your time. Great. Thanks, Bert. Thanks, everyone. You can now watch Realm IQ sessions on your favorite podcast channels, including Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and iHeart Podcasts. Follow and subscribe, people. If your company is interested in reaching an audience of AI professionals and decision makers to promote your event or product, we have sponsorships on this podcast. Go to Realm IQ splash sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Ovations. That's with a Z. Ovations is the first online platform to simplify the talent finding and booking process for virtual events. Go to www.ovations.com, again with a Z, and there you will find a variety of speakers, including myself. And if you're a booker, use the promo code KURT5, that's C-U-R-T number five. 
and get a 5% discount for booking any speaker, including myself. Realm IQ. Book your corporate AI workshop today. Kurt Dodi.co. Branding, marketing, and product development.